amazing promise, isn't it? Uh, yeah, as we join them today, things looked pretty bleak from Abraham and Sarai's point of view, uh, because in chapter 16, he's 86 years old and his wife is 76 years old. Uh, they've been in Canaan for 10 years and they've grown really prosperous. They've got loads of cattle and sheep and goats, but they've got no children. So I want to talk about the passage today under two headings. So the first verse, uh, first six verses under human unfaithfulness and the rest of the chapter under God's faithfulness by contrast. Uh, so we're going to start with human unfaithfulness. And really the, the plot here is worthy of an EastEnders episode, isn't it? Uh, let me just read the first uh, two verses. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children, Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Well, Sarai wants a baby, but can't get pregnant. So she gets her maid to sleep with her husband and the maid promptly does get pregnant. And then predictably enough, the bitchiness starts and relationships fall apart. So I wonder where you can see, whether you can see where it starts to go wrong, uh, right at the beginning of this episode. Uh, there's a hint here in what Sarai says. And the problem is that little word, I, in verse two, Sarai says, perhaps I can build a family through my maid. And I've heard it said that I is always the central problem in sin, isn't it? Sin has I in the center, S-I-N. Uh, and it's whenever we want to go our way instead of God's way that the problems start. Well, of course, Sarai knew God's promise, uh, but after 10 years, she's decided it's not going to work. Uh, so she's going to take action herself to sort it out. I could build a family through my maid, she said to Abraham. Well, I think there is actually quite a, a straightforward application to ourselves today. Uh, we always ought to be careful when we decide that I am going to do something for the Lord, uh, because actually it's the other way around, isn't it? If we're going to do anything worthwhile for God. I guess uh, this particular episode is strange for us to understand today. Uh, why would a wife want her maid to sleep with her husband? Uh, but no doubt Sarai and Abraham justified by saying that it was a custom in their pagan culture and that others did the same all the time when the wife was childless. But actually that doesn't excuse them at all. Uh, and I think again, it's very obvious the application, isn't it, to, our, to ourselves uh, in this day and age. Uh, because say, for example, just in, because in our own culture, others make light of a fling outside marriage. And you know, the very word fling makes it sound not very serious, doesn't it? Uh, they, people don't talk about adultery. They just say, oh, I've just had a fling. If we do that, it certainly doesn't make it okay for Christians to do the same as those in our culture are doing. So being acceptable in our culture doesn't change something that's wrong in God's eyes into something that is right. It's always a mistake. And Christians are called to be countercultural. And of course, God's sovereignty is far bigger than our actions. So whenever we step outside and push them aside, then it's not really surprising if things go wrong. Now, of course, the wish to have children is a, an incredibly strong emotional urge. And it can be 
incredibly painful if it's not possible to conceive. And I certainly don't want to make light of that as we read this passage. But I think there are things that we can learn from it for all sorts of other circumstances that I've uh, mentioned already. Well, to go back to the passage, predictably enough, as soon as Hagar was pregnant, things started to go downhill. If you look at uh, verse four, when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms. And now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. So here's Hagar taunting Sarai. And what does Sarai do? Well, she promptly blames Abram. And what does Abram do? Uh, does he take the lead, try to bring some reconciliation into the family? No, it's a real failure on his part and abdication of responsibility. Uh, and in many ways, it's a repeat of Adam's failings right back in the Garden of Eden. Uh, verse six there, your servant is in your hands, Abram said, do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. And I think it, it's another good lesson for us, actually, isn't it? Uh, as, we, as we say in our confessions, that not doing things that we ought to do is sometimes as bad as doing things that we ought to do. Uh, and that's what happens here. Abraham did not take the responsibility that he should have. Well, it's a very sorry tale, isn't it? And none of the three come out of it well. Sarai tried to use Hagar for her own ends, then was vindictive and abused her. Hagar despised Sarai, and Abraham got Hagar pregnant and then didn't take his responsibilities seriously. And it all ends up with a signal pregnant woman fleeing into the desert back towards her homeland of Egypt, because that's where Hagar had come from. And even though she's carrying Abraham's child, Abraham does nothing to stop this happening. Well, this story could have ended there, an unhappy marriage, a single mother thrown out of her job and her home. And where were God's plans now to build this great empire, this great huge number of people from Abraham? Well, of course, with hindsight, we know that it didn't end there. God is sovereign and his plans won't be thwarted. Uh, we know that Sarai and Abraham had to wait another 15 years before they had a son. That was the son called Isaac. And by then Sarai was 90, Abraham was 100. And this was no son of human scheming like Hagar's child. Isaac was indeed the son of God's promise. That's pretty obvious. Why had God chosen Abraham? Well, he chose Abraham simply because he decided to choose him. It wasn't particularly because of his uprightness, as we've seen in this story. And we see actually many times, again, we see his moral failings. And actually, I think that's a, a huge encouragement to us, actually, because these very human failings are an encouragement to us to keep going, to keep trusting God. It's the same for us Christians. And God doesn't choose us uh, for our good looks or our cleverness or anything like that. He chooses us because he wants to use us and all he wants us to do is to be faithful to him. So the story in chapter 16 leaves Abraham and Sarai at this point. I'm sure they had some very tricky marital relations at this point. Uh, but we move on to the second part of the story from verse seven onward. And as I was uh, reading this, I was, uh, I was thinking of the fact that Christopher Plummer died recently. 
you may know that he was one of the apparently non-singing stars of The Sound of Music. Uh, and if you know the film, as I suspect many of us do, uh, you'll know that it starts with a long panoramic sweep across the mountains and a glacier down a valley towards lakes and trees. It comes lower and lower until it skims the treetops and focuses on a grassy clearing on a hilltop where Julie Andrews is standing with her arms outstretched in the middle, singing the signature tune, which I'm not going to sing to you because my singing is awful. The hills are alive with the sound of music. And then the rest of the story pivots around her, doesn't it? And in Genesis, it's as if the camera turns away from Abraham and Sarai and it pans across the desert until it finds and focuses in on a lonely pregnant woman sitting near a spring in the desert of Shur. Uh, and that place was probably close to the border with Egypt. So we rejoin the story in verse seven, if you're following. Uh, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I think there's a couple of telling points in these two sentences as God meets and seeks out uh, Hagar. Uh, I mean, first of all, it's a point that the Lord did seek Hagar out and he always does seek us out. And the real question is whether or not we will respond to him or whether we're so busy with ourselves our careers, our family, our hobbies, that we ignore him. Now, Hagar did respond to him. And secondly, do you notice how the Lord knew all about Hagar? Well, of course he does, doesn't he? Because he's sovereign. He knows every hair on our heads, every sparrow that dies. So he knows Hagar's name. He knows that she is Sarai's servant. But still he asks that question in verse 8. Where have you come from and where are you going? And I think that also is typical of the Lord's dealings with us, isn't it? Of course, he doesn't need to ask us what we're thinking or what we're doing or why we're doing it. But sometimes he just has to jolt us to examine what we are doing ourselves, what our motives are. And that can come in many ways, maybe through a sermon, uh, maybe a Bible passage we've read, perhaps a conversation with a Christian friend, a verse in a song. And that's how God deals with us. And in this case, Hagar answers God's question truthfully. In verse eight, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. That's a good lesson, isn't it? When, when we're challenged by God or by a Christian, is to be truthful and honest. Uh, that's the most helpful thing to do. And having initiated this conversation without further ado, the angel of the Lord told her in verse nine, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now, I bet this was the very last thing that Hagar wanted to hear. It was a massively hard thing the Lord was asking of Hagar. Uh, the very least she might expect when she got back would be ill treatment. And as a runaway slave, she might even face death. But the Lord tells her to turn around, to go back, to submit to her mistress Sarai. He doesn't say it will be easy. Uh, actually, in fact, he doesn't say anything about what it will be like. He just asks for obedience. And Hagar is obedient. She does go back. And again, I'm sure this is a lesson for us. That's why it's in the Bible for us to learn a way to respond to God. Well, Hagar has her son Ishmael. She continues to live in Abraham's family for the next 15 years. And as we'll see in a couple of weeks, Abraham actually gets very fond of her son. Well, 
let's just think uh, of the application of this to ourselves. Um, even if things the Lord asks us to do uh, are things that we don't understand the reasons for, even if they look difficult to, to us, as they certainly must have done to Hagar, to turn around from our own ways to God's way is always, without exception, the best plan that could possibly be for our lives. And I think there's a lovely touch at the end of this encounter between the living God and Hagar, because he leaves her with a great encouragement. Uh, in verse 10, you'll see that he says, uh, the angel, who is, is the way God spoke to her, the angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. Well, I wonder whether Hagar had overheard Abraham and Sarai telling of that same promise that they'd received from God. Well, if she had, here it was coming true for her. This Ishmael wasn't God's chosen one. He was a fruit of human scheming, not of God's miraculous promise. That promise had to wait for fulfillment in Isaac. But still, this Ishmael would be the start of a numerous people. Uh, and in verse 12, we see that though he was going to be a wild donkey of a man, still he would be free. He wouldn't be a slave of anyone like his mother was. So as we come to the end of this uh, chapter, I think it's encouraging to reflect on the two halves of the story. First, there was Abraham and Sarai stepping away from their trust in God, trying to do things their own way. And it led to moral failure. It led to recrimination. It led to vindictiveness, to false blame, to pride. It caused great anguish in the lives of all three people involved. And you might even say it caused anguish through the ages uh, between conflicts, say, between Israelis and Jews as well, uh, Israelis and Arabs as well. But it didn't thwart God's sovereign plan to build his people through Abraham and then on through his second son, Isaac, and eventually on through David to Jesus. That's the first half. But in the second half, we see God's faithfulness and compassion for Hagar and her response in obedience. And I wonder whether any of us has ever felt that we're in a desert, uh, maybe not a real physical desert, but a place where there doesn't seem to be any real purpose to life, little real meaning. Maybe even the ongoing constrictions caused by the pandemic make us feel as if we're in a desert. Then if so, we can take heart from Hagar's story. She knew that the Lord had seen her as he sees each one of us. She knew that if she wanted to get out of that desert, the only way was to turn around and go the way the Lord told her. But, and this is a crucial thing, she had to take that step of obedience herself. So as Abraham, Sarai and Hagar each discovered, going their own way was painful and difficult. But God is faithful, he is sovereign and he kept his promises to them. So we need to learn to listen to God's promises to apply them to ourselves and to trust them. Because when God makes promises, he keeps them. And those promises are intended for each one of us. Well, I'm going to suggest now that we, we go into breakout groups. I, I've put the question that I'd like you to uh, think about in the uh, chat. And if I can share my screen, it'll come up on the screen as well there. Um, and the question was, think of ways in which we might be tempted to live by the wisdom of the world, which is what Sarai was doing and Abraham was doing. 
rather than trusting in God's promises. And it would certainly be really helpful if you can think of real life ex examples to share with people, uh, because I think it is one of the biggest challenges we face today, isn't it? That our culture has very strong influence on us. And it's very hard not to go along with the wisdom of our culture, the wisdom of our world. So let me leave you with that and hand back to Simon.